This podcast is very proudly brought to you by my new book, From Peasants Food to Superfoods. This book is based on cooking for the entire family and it guides cooks from all experiences on how to integrate healthy foods into everyday life. I know it's easy to stick to the same old things every week with a family to feed and a budget to stick to, but eating nutritious and delicious food every night is achievable and affordable. Learning how to use, prepare, and incorporate new and old ingredients into tasty and exciting food is what I love doing. So I have put this book together. It's over 300 pages. There's over 100 simple, nutritious recipes, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, desserts. Most of it's gluten-free, dairy-free. It's very gut-healing, very anti-inflammatory, and I hope that you will love it as much as I have, putting it together and (laughs) bringing it to life. So if you would like to check it out, learn more or order it, jump online at www.mgherbs.com.au. And thanks for bringing us the podcast today. You're listening to Melissa Gearing, the Naked Naturopath. Mel is a qualified naturopath, herbalist and nutritionist. She can't wait to share her thoughts on all things health and wellness with you. Hi everybody, welcome back to The Naked Naturopath. I'm really pleased that you're listening in today. This one is a bit more for the female listeners, but I would love if the men listened in as well because I really think that you guys can take, um, I don't think you can have too much information about the female reproductive system and what we go through. So today on the podcast, I have Lisa Hendrickson-Jack and I'm really excited to have you on. It's been a bit hit and miss. I got confused with the times and dates, but you are an amazing, amazing woman. I follow, I get all your emails and I follow what you do. You've got the Fertility Friday podcast and you've just released in January your book, The Fifth Vital Sign. And I noticed that you can um, download the chapter, uh, free chapter, the first chapter, which I loved and I did that and I read it. But you've also got your website, your courses, your coaching. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. And we were joking because I'm in Canada and you're in Australia. So as we're recording this, I always joke that you're in the future because it's actually tomorrow for you. I love that. I've never heard anyone say that. So it's, yeah, I was like, what do you mean? I am. <laughs> <laughs> So we've just had a little um, chat uh, before I hit record about publishing, which is (laughs) always fun. Um, You know, my last book, I developed another autoimmune disease. So I love doing it, but it is incredibly stressful. Um, But your book looks beautiful. Congratulations. Thank you. It was, it's, we talked a little bit about the process. I don't think it's ever necessarily easy to publish a book. Uh, it's definitely a process and it took me about two years to put it all together and to, you know, finalize everything, but I'm really happy with how it turned out. And I love your cover. Your your cover's (laughs) awesome. I actually didn't, um, realize what it represented until one of my, I downloaded it for one of my friends and she was like, Oh, there's a vagina on the front. And I was like, Oh, (laughs) so there he is. I thought it was a fruit. That's so awesome. Well, so for anyone who's listening that doesn't know what the cover looks like, it's, uh, I don't know what kind of flower it is because I, I wish I did. I'm not a that girl flower. that knows all the flowers. you think but I would know uh, that as a herbalist. Yeah, I, I don't know. But someone's going to laugh at me because it's a really common flower. I don't know. It's it. not, yeah, I don't know. Um, orchid? Beautiful. Is it an orchid? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> okay. But either way, what I did when I was, so when my 
designer, when my cover designer was designing it for me, I basically said to him that I wanted it to look like vulva without looking like an actual vulva. Yeah. And he found it. That's it looks awesome. like a vulva, but not like an actual vulva. And it's usually men that are like, oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, this was like my friend who I work with, and she was just like, oh, vagina. And I was just like, ah. <laughs> But um, it's full of research articles and all of your knowledge and expertise in the area. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do and how you kind of come to put that together for, for people. Yes, well, I am a fertility awareness educator. And basically what that means is I teach women to chart their menstrual cycles. I've been doing it for a really long time. I started charting my own cycles almost 20 years ago and it was shortly after that that I, you know, took a training course and began teaching women to chart. And essentially with fertility awareness, it's learning how to understand your body's signs. So understanding that you're not fertile every single day of your cycle, that there's only a short window of time when you can actually get pregnant from mm-hmm. sex, understanding how to identify that. And then you can choose to either use that as a form of natural birth control that is actually as effective, if not more effective than the pill when used correctly up yes. to 99.4% effective. You could okay. use that knowledge to optimize your chances of conceiving. And you can also use it for other health related information. So mm. understanding the connection between your menstrual cycle and your overall health, because it can actually help you to identify underlying issues. If you have issues with your menstrual cycle. So that's a big part of what I do. And then when I had my first son around that time, I was about 30 years old. It was actually on my 30th birthday, (laughs) the day after. I went into labor on my 30th birthday. Oh, wow. (laughs) And he was born the day after. So he didn't quite take my birthday, but he basically (laughs) took my birthday. Um, But, I mean, around that age is when all of my friends, everyone I know, you know, in in the same age group, that cohort, is when everyone's having kids. It's when your Facebook feed is full of children. And it was also around that time that I realized that so many women are struggling with fertility challenges. And still, even though I had been able to take this information for granted for over a decade, and I was using fertility awareness to avoid pregnancy my, through my entire 20s. Mm. So when I was ready to, to conceive, I just switched the dates, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I realized that, you know, even though I had known about this, the world hasn't changed. The mm. average woman still has no idea how her fertility works. Yes. The average woman doesn't know that there's just a small window of fertility or how to identify it or even how to make that connection between health challenges and menstrual cycle issues. So at that point, it prompted me to start my podcast. And out of that now has come the book because I'm just on a quest to share this knowledge with women I mean, ultimately, where else are we going to get it from if we're not teaching ourselves? Absolutely. And not only do women not know about it, but we're always like, we're kind of almost discouraged from knowing about it. Like go on the pill. It will, it will literally, you know, tell you when you take that sugar pill, that's when you bleed, um, so on and so forth. And lots of women don't know any different or that there are other options because even though you're a fertility awareness coach, it's not just about fertility. It's about like not having a baby as well, yes. which is key. And as you said, like we as naturopaths, we ask women so many questions about their cycle and I have clients come in and, you know, they come in for like migraines or uh, tummy aches, pains or whatever it might be. And I'll start asking them about their cycle and they'll be like, no, no, that's not what I come for. And I'm like, it's actually a really good indicator of lots of other health factors for me as a clinician, um, you know, and I have to kind of explain that. And if they are on the pill or the IUD or something similar, it makes it very difficult for me to use that as what you would call a vital sign of health mm-hmm. because essentially it's not their cycle anymore. 
Um, now, I like I said, I get your emails and I love them because they're so informative and you are giving away so much information, which is um, absolutely necessary in today's age because we don't have we don't have women of generations before passing it down to us anymore for some reason. Um, but I saw you did a podcast recently about the IUD, um, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Can you talk to me a little bit about that and versus the pill? Yeah, no, that's such a great question. I, I've, I've spent the latter part of the, the majority of the podcast years talking about the pill. And so within the last couple of years, I've really made an attempt to connect with women who have had experiences using other types of birth control. And so the episode that I think you're referring to, I've done a couple, but I interviewed a few women who had taken, who had used the copper IUD, a couple of women who had used the hormonal IUD. Mm. And, uh, Mm. so we can talk about the hormonal IUD first. I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of myths, I guess. I feel like I spent a lot of my time myth busting as I'm sure that you do. (laughs) So even what you said about, you know, when women are on the pill, because when you, if you talk to a woman on the pill, she would talk to you about her periods and Mm. her cycles. Uh, but she doesn't really realize that she's not having a real period. Mm. She's having a withdrawal bleed. And so even just the myth that when you're on the pill, you get to keep menstruating. That's not true. Right. Okay. Uh, so um, when it comes to the hormonal IUD, often what women are told is that it's a low dose and it's localized because it's inside the uterus. Mm-hmm. And I find that to be really interesting because it, you know, even though the dose is lower, you have a circulatory system. So when you have the IUD in your body and it's releasing the synthetic progestin, they don't stay in your uterus. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, for some women, the, the IUD or just in general uh, hormonal birth control that contains progestin only is, is good. So for some women, I mean, I think, you know, some women take different birth control. Mm. Some women have really heavy side effects. Some women don't really have that many obvious side effects. And for some women, you know, switching to something that's progestin only can be helpful, but there's a lot of women who take the progestin releasing IUDs and they, they have just as significant side effects. Um, some women stop getting periods altogether, uh, mood side effects, all those types of things. Um, so I think it's just helpful to know that, with the hormonal IUD, it has a lot of the same side effects as the birth control mm. pill, essentially. Yeah. Um, one of the main differences I would say between the hormonal IUD and the birth control pill is that with the hormonal IUDs, some women do continue to ovulate on them. And so for many women, that is obviously a benefit because at least you are, yes. you know, for, for yeah. many women, at least they are still ovulating. Yeah. But there's categories. So some women ovulate like fairly regularly. Some women ovulate sporadically and some women don't ovulate. Mm. So either way, it still interferes to some extent with your natural cycle because you're still getting influx of artificial hormones. But because it doesn't always completely suppress the ovulation, that can make it kind of slightly better because you're still getting some degree of your natural progesterone, yeah. if that makes sense. Okay. So... Um, Oh, go ahead. You go. If you go. Yay. (laughs) Well, I was just going to say about the copper IUD, but we could spend a little bit more time hanging out with the, if you had, if you wanted to talk a little bit more about the hormonal IUD. No, I, I'm happy to move on to the copper. I'm very interested. I'm learning, (laughs) which I love. (laughs) 
Well, so with the copper IUD, obviously that is, um, if you think about it, for women who are wanting to avoid hormones, it feels like the perfect option. And for many women, it is because it's like, it's, it's, a, it's not interfering necessarily with your hormones. Mm-hmm. Although there, I did look at some research about it. I think it's helpful to know that with the copper IUD, one of the ways that it works is by creating kind of like a localized inflammation so creating a bit of inflammation around yes. within your endometrial cavity. And so, and with the copper itself, the copper is to some degree spermicidal. Yeah. So there's, they, it's like, they don't exactly know how it works. Well, <laughs> it, it's it toxic, would seem. right? <laughs> Pardon me? I mean, copper is toxic to lots of different cells in our body. So it's, it would make sense that it kills um, these poor little spermies. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they don't have much protection. Well, yeah. Well, it's interesting because it does, the copper itself does have some sort of spermicidal quality. Mm. And I mean, we need copper, but the, one of the challenges with the copper IUD is that it can lead to copper excess yeah. because it's lots, lots of copper. So it can kind of throw off mm. the balance between copper and uh, zinc, which mm-hmm. is interesting because mm-hmm. the pill depletes zinc. Mm. Uh, and also, you know, if you're if you're copper toxic, the balance between zinc can also be thrown off. Uh, but um, with the localized inflammation, so with the copper IUD, there are certain side effects that women should know about, and that's what I was addressing in those podcast episodes. So one of the common side effects with the copper IUD is an increased amount of bleeding, so kind of bleeding heavier. Mm-hmm. If you had period pain before the copper IUD can kind of make that worse. And if you think about it being this localized inflammatory effect, well, that makes sense. (laughs) Um, And so I know, I remember for me, when I was thinking about different birth control methods, so, you know, my journey with fertility awareness, I basically was on the pill as a teenager to manage heavy painful Mm -hmm. periods because I didn't know any better. And it took me about three words for the doctor to start writing the prescriptions. That was also very easy. Yeah. And... (laughs) But when I needed birth control, I didn't feel comfortable with the pill because I hadn't been using it for birth control. And so I wasn't taking it at the right time, but I was always a nerd. So I had read the whole package and I knew that I remember if you don't take it the right time, you had to take another pill the next day and all these things. And I I just felt like that would leave me in a constant state of stress. So in my mind, I was like, I'm going to use condoms all the time. So Mm. I may as well just not use the pill. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was also always a bit concerned since I had heavy painful periods. I went on the pill, the pill made them better, but then I would go off the pill and they would come back worse. So I knew from that young age of like 16, 17, that it wasn't actually fixing anything. It was just kind of like masking it. Yeah. Yeah. Covering it up. Still the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So where was I going with this? There was a point to that. Um, So did you try another form of birth control? Is that, did you try IUD? Thank you for, yeah. So for me, when I was considering the IUD, um, I remember learning that the copper IUD could make heavy periods worse or cramping worse. And I thought to myself, well, no, I already have a nine or 10 at the cramp scale because it was very bad for me back then. And so it was just not even an option. So basically those are one of the interesting things just in general about IUDs that I found from interviewing women who had used them was the insertion pain Mm. because people don't, I didn't even really know about that, but essentially it seems as though a lot of medical professionals have decided that the cervix doesn't have any nerve endings. And so they don't offer any pain. Okay. Like standard, like for the general, yeah, the general, yeah. 
they don't generally offer pain anything. And so you go in there to get the IUD inserted and the insertion, I, when I ask women to describe what the pain level is and how they're feeling, they'll describe it as like a seven or an eight out of 10. Wow. Yeah. But then they'll quickly dismiss it by saying, well, it's just for a couple of like, just for like a short period of time when they're just trying to insert it. Um, but then there's cases where, you know, maybe they try to insert it and it doesn't work the first yes. time. So then they have to do it again, or you just, for women who switch from one type to the other, they kind of take it out and put it in. So it can be mm. a bit sore, yeah, but the insertion definitely. pain was definitely a big problem. I, one of the women who I've interviewed on the podcast she, the insertion pain was so bad that she ended up leaving. She didn't get it in that day. Yeah, right. I Here in Australia, we have um, clinics that can do it, but there is some GPs who do it within their surgery. And I definitely have reports of a very poor experience if they go to the GP and just get it done on the bed there and then um, as, you know, as compared to uh, actually going into like a twilight or, a you know, a semi um, like, well, a semi going under uh, general anesthetic and stuff like that. What I have had reported in clinic is the trying to get it out um, mm-hmm. being a huge issue and women even having, having grown, um, you know, a, a tissue over the the device um, and then having it stuck and then having to be transferred and cut out and all that kind of stuff, which just sounds so traumatic, mm-hmm. <laughs> horrific. Did you talk well, and to then women? when it's inserted, the, the strings are supposed to stay, and so if, if for some reason it goes out of place and you can't find the strings anymore. Um, yeah, right. And because they're putting oh. it into women who may also have endometriosis, which means obviously that they're going to be at a more a higher likelihood of having the endometrial tissue possibly grow over it as well, um, which just seems crazy to me. Well, and it's interesting because on the one side, you may have a woman who's had the IUD for a while and then they try to get it out and they can't find it. Mm. But on the other side, you have women who expel them. Right. I, women who, like, they put it in and the, they, they literally expel it. Their uterus rejects it and it mm-hmm. comes out. Mm. Um, and think? then, oh, I was just going to say, and yeah. then there's women who, I mean, the, the whole purpose of getting the IUD is to have birth control so that you can go about your, so just to talk a little bit about the copper IUD, I mean, with the copper IUD, it doesn't stop your cycle because it's not hormonal. So that's one of obviously the benefits that we were talking about. So with the copper IUD, for example, if you, one of the women who I interviewed, she got pregnant mm. and her story was really interesting because of course she didn't get pregnant like that week that she got it in. She got pregnant. I think it was two or three years later. I'd have to kind of go back and listen. So by the time you've had this thing in your body for two to three years, that box is so checked that you don't even think about it anymore. Mm. You're not even thinking about yeah. the possibility yeah. of getting pregnant at all. And so her story was really fascinating because she was having extreme abdominal pain kind oh of out of gosh. the blue. Um, she kind of thought, you know, something I ate, like pregnancy didn't cross her mind. Yeah. And you know, that she went into the emergency room and they eventually did do a test, a, a pregnancy test. And so the doctor's literally telling her, like, you're pregnant. <gasps> and she's like, no, I'm not. Like, I don't know what to tell you. It must be something else. Um, so with one of the things that, like, upon her reflection, kind of after the fact and everything. So in her case, she was pregnant. She did have to go into emergency surgery because the pregnancy was ectopic. And that's why she was experiencing all the pain. Yeah. Um, and I think it's not about dissuading women from using 
the IUD because many yeah. women use the copper IUD mm. and have a fine experience with it. It's more just that we need to be able to say, like what one of the things I said to her was, you know, if someone had just sat you down and said, it's a very, very small possibility, but you know, every birth control method has a failure rate. So yeah. we need to just come on. We, yeah. we can say that because it's true. But even if someone just sits you down and says, okay, so these are some of the most common side effects that you may experience. If you ever do have extreme abdominal pain, there's a really small chance of pregnancy with any mm. birth control with this particular device. And if you do get pregnant, there's a slightly elevated chance that it could be ectopic. So it could actually be really serious. So if you ever do experience this is in my perfect world. This is what I picture. I picture these proper conversations that yes. adults should be having with yeah. each other. <laughs> so that then three years later, if you do have extreme abdominal pain, which would be very rare, at least you would be like, I remember that doctor told me that if yeah. I ever had symptoms like this, I should get you to the doctor right away yeah. just to make sure everything's okay. Yeah. Like this is what we need is when we just need the information and the heads up so that we can make these decisions. And so that when we, you know, if we do have the worst side effect, at least we know that, oh, okay, this Someone yeah, told me possible. this could happen. Absolutely. Do you think that then, um, you know, because sometimes the uterus does expel it and stuff like that, and you mentioned heavier bleeding and maybe extra pain, um, do you think that that is a reflection of that inflammation that it is causing? I think that it's related to it yeah. because one of the unexpected side effects that a few separate women told me about with the copper IUD in particular was random uterine spasming and cramping Okay, that was not with their period. So I always thought, okay, it's just going to be that if you do happen to be prone to painful periods, mm. that they would just be worse. But I had a number of women tell me on different. So I remember I did a couple of interviews like separately and I would be talking to the one woman being like, Oh my goodness, when I air this episode with this other one, you're going to just be like, Holy cow, we have the same symptoms. Yeah. So just imagine you're just living your life and randomly throughout your cycle a couple of times you'll get like an intense clenching kind of cramping pain for a while and then it kind of goes away. So I had several different women kind of explain that that's something that happened and it was would happen randomly. It wasn't always with the period mm. and it eventually just got to the point that it was, it was quite debilitating when it happened, but for a short time, yeah. just cramping. Yeah. And eventually they kind of years into it, but eventually they would decide just to take it out because it just felt like it was too much to have yep. this rant. Like you can't plan for it. It's just Thursday afternoon. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? yeah. I know um, exactly what you're talking about. Cause um, I have that uh, with my endometriosis. That's one of my symptoms and it's definitely better um, since, you know, you do the work on your cycle. I take herbs, I do the supplements and I have that, fertility awareness so I can get a bit of an idea but it can be completely random and it's just that you know that shooting almost shooting heated um severe pain and I sometimes it buckles me and then I'm I'm like cool to go again and it's not related to a bleed yeah so that makes sense and there's a lot of inflammation with endo um so if it does reflect that inflammation from from the device yeah well, and then when they take it out, it stops happening. Mm, yeah, right. The other thing it's related <laughs> so then to, it's gone. it yeah. could be their diet too. So if you have that inflammation systemically to start with and then something comes into your diet or your environment that is inflammatory to you, it just triggers that response briefly. Um, yeah, yeah, fascinating. Anyway, so I get it, especially if I've had um, gluten. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah, and then I'll have a really, like a really remarkably worse bleed, pain, heavy clots, all that kind of stuff if my diet's been a bit off. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and I feel like I walk a fine line when I'm talking about birth control because I have a lot to say about all different types of birth control. But it's more, I feel the responsibility of sharing the, you know, the informed consent aspect of it where we just, as women, it's just because it affects your day-to-day life. I mean, having a device put into your body, it's usually, I mean, it costs money. So Mm -hmm. depending on what your coverage is like, but also it's a commitment. Women who decide to get the proper ID, it's a commitment. They're doing it for typically a period of three to five years in some cases is at least how long they could have it in. And so it's a really big commitment to make. Um, it's important to know what could happen. And one of the things I'll just kind of point out as well, that's really interesting was that, um, the, the woman who I interviewed who got pregnant using it after everything happened and she ended up, you know, getting it out eventually. And then, you know, switching over to fertility awareness charting. One of the things that she said was because you do keep cycling while you're using the copper IED, she said, it would have been helpful for her to know that yeah. because she would have been able to see her mucus to know when yes. she was ovulating and to kind of, because she, one of the things she said was if I had known about my cycle, I would have known mm. that I was pregnant mm. because I would have had, you know, when you're charting and you're taking your temperature every morning, um, that kind of sustained temperature rise is an indication of ovulation. So if you, but your period comes 12 to 14 days after. So if it's day 15, 16, 17, 18, mm. 19, and you haven't got your period yet, you would know that you're pregnant. Like yeah. <laughs> that would be the sign and you would have that heads up information. So she indicated that in her case, it would have been helpful to have this knowledge to apply to with her use of the copyright yeah, so absolutely. that at least she would have known. Yeah. You're not saying on. Um, one or the other don't use, um, you know, the pill and the IUD and stuff like that. No. And you know, that's not what I do either. I work with whatever my clients want to do um, and work with the pill all the time, primarily some IUD stuff, um, but you can still take herbs and you can still do cycle work and I can still teach people, uh, you know, about that, uh, that awareness. Um, but yeah, like it's just, it's fascinating that without having any other options medically, women don't know. They just don't know. There's no knowledge out there that they have. They have information at their fingertips, I guess, to create a really beautiful cycle <laughs> within, yes. within whatever they're doing. And that's what we do with herbs. We try to create a really beautiful cycle. Um, it actually kind of makes you more fertile, you know, by doing that. Yeah. But that's great. Like I want to go back to what you said before about you using your fertility awareness to fall pregnant. The thing with doing that is not only are you more fertile for when you want it, but your fertility is so specific and you know when it is that you can not fall pregnant as well. So it has like both the benefits, whereas most women only want to do or come to do fertility awareness when they think about a baby. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because I often joke that it's like, so for instance, if I'm working with someone and we're tracking the cycle Part of it is understanding like which days are fertile, which days are not. But part of it is understanding what a healthy cycle looks like Mm -hmm. and making those connections of how your lifestyle factors can improve your cycle. So obviously the the end goal is to be healthier and a healthy body is a fertile body. And And one of the things you said. And happier because it affects your mind as well. You know, your mental health is so linked to your hormones. Yeah. And you get to keep your libido. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because your hormones are optimally healthy, right? So it's, yeah. it's win, win, win. Um, 
But um, what's interesting about that is that, I mean, for me as a fertility awareness instructor, I, you know, if, even if your cycles aren't perfect, even if your, you know, cycles aren't completely regular all the time, it's still possible to chart because the method that I teach fertility awareness, it's not the rhythm method. So we're not looking at, you know, your previous six cycles and doing an average and mm-hmm. trying to calculate on a calculator when you're going to be fertile. Yeah. We're looking at your fertile signs. So we're looking at your cervical mucus observations. So that would be kind of like either lotiony white type um, fluid or clear, stretchy egg white raw egg white type fluid that you appro- that you produce as you approach ovulation. So we're paying attention to that. We're paying attention to the temperature, like we spoke about, and even the cervical position. So it doesn't have to be perfectly regular or anything in order to use the method. But when you are really healthy, like you said, if you are taking the herbs and paying attention to your cycles, you're essentially making yourself more fertile. But um, what that means for charting is that when your cycles are really healthy, your fertile window tends to be more defined. Mm. So there tends to be a very obvious difference between, say, your pre-ovulatory phase, you know, when you're not making mucus, you tend to have like uh, in a healthy cycle, mucus for anywhere from two to seven days before ovulation. And then you would have your period, you know, 12 to 14 days later. So even though ovulation isn't always going to happen on the same day, women don't always ovulate on day 14. Mm. <laughs> um, ovulation in a healthy cycle can happen anywhere from day 10 to day 23. It's like to put that out there whenever I have a chance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but in a healthy cycle, it's easier to chart in the sense that your fertile window is more defined. Your mucus is really healthy. So when you have mucus, it's really obvious. When you don't, it's really obvious. And so even though technically like you're more quote unquote fertile, you can more easily, I mean, I, I was very continue to be what, um, just I'll use myself as, as an example. Um, when my husband and I were trying to conceive with our second son, so by then obviously I'd had my first son already. Um, we, you know, like when we were ready to conceive, it just happened that one cycle. So for me, I know that uh, there's a potential for me to get pregnant right away. So that helps me to identify, like to use the method very effectively to avoid pregnancy when we are not trying to get pregnant. So I'm trying to, you can tell I'm like trying to explain that, like, even if you're super, super quote unquote fertile, that's just going to help you use fertility awareness if you're wanting to use it for birth control. Yes. Yes. I have, I try to have these conversations with my clients whenever I give them like, um, you know, Vitex or Peony, um, some of those really beautiful reproductive herbs. I'm like, look, I'm putting this in. I realize that you don't want to have a baby just so you're aware it can make you more fertile, but what that's going to allow us to do is really be specific about where you're at in your cycle, um, which is such a beautiful thing. And then, you know, when you said about the libido just before, I had this client come back just last week and she's like, you know, I said, I know you said it would make me more fertile and maybe that's not the right word for me to be using with them. Um, but, you know, it is. That's what it does, essentially. Uh, more well, vibrant, like, you know, it makes I it wonder about that myself because, I mean, when I'm talking to clients, what one of the things that I tell all my clients, it's within a totally different context. But it's, just, it's within understanding the, the method itself. Um, one of the things I say is that, you know, when you're looking at your cervical mucus, we don't think of mucus pre-ovulatory as more or less fertile because you can't be more or less pregnant. You're either pregnant or not. Yeah. And so in a way, you know, from, the, from my standpoint as an educator, I would probably not necessarily say that because... Mm. Um, because any cycle where you have ovulation, you can potentially get pregnant. Yes. 
Yeah. Um, and, and so essentially like you could, I don't know what, I don't know what the term we could try you know, try to figure it out, but yeah. essentially it could just be like boosting your hormone health, boost, yeah. boosting your overall Menstrual health and vitality. Health. Uh, yeah, and you yeah. should be fertile because Fertility, this is the whole point of everything that I do. When I say the menstrual cycle is a vital sign, it means that your menstrual cycle is a sign of health. It means that if you're a woman of reproductive age, then having ovulation, healthy cycles, menstruation Mm. is a sign that you're healthy. So you want your, you know, this is how, when when your body is functioning normally, it means that, yeah, you could get pregnant um, if you were exposed to, but, but the great news is that there's only, from a scientific standpoint, mm-hmm. there are only six days of your cycle when pregnancy is possible mm-hmm. because your cervical mucus can keep sperm alive for up to five days as you approach ovulation. And then ovulation happens on one day of the cycle. And that is a total of six days. So the good news is that, you know, when you're healthy and you can understand and interpret your fertile signs, and you can recognize that the fertile window is actually quite small and you're not fertile every single day. If you can figure out how to identify when that is, you don't have to be constantly worried about getting yeah. pregnant from every single act of sex you ever have. Yes. Well, going back to that client, she was very much like, um, you know, I know you said this and I get what you mean now because my cycle is becoming clearer, but I am really horny. And I haven't, and she has, I think her kid's like two, two and a half. She's like, I haven't felt like this since before I had a baby. Um, My husband and I are loving it, but I would like to go further into this so that I know, you know, when we need to just be a bit more careful or, uh, you know, abstinence or whatever she wants to do. Um, Yeah. So it was just really great to hear and had a very quick, that was only two weeks on her. So had a very quick (laughs) response, which is great. So great. I love that. Yeah. Vibrancy. Well, and that's, that's pretty big. Oh, sorry. Oh, it's, it's a vibrancy, isn't it? Like she she has her beautiful female vibrancy back after going through what is it? You know, it's a very tough first two years when you have your first bubble. Yeah, and it's incredible that that you can bring kind of connect her back with that yeah, part of herself. Yeah, I love it. And oh, this is why I've been so excited to be able to talk to you on the podcast and share this with everyone. Um, yeah, it's really, really awesome. And I'm very passionate about that. Um, as you are too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, because one of the, when, whenever the topic of hormonal birth control comes up, I mean, it's so interesting how it's so fraught with like, as women were taught myths about our cycle. Mm. I remember as a teenage girl being taught that I could get pregnant on any day of my cycle. Mm. And I was specifically told in my class that there, there were no safe days. And I left that class just with a sense of terror and yes. fear because I didn't really understand how it worked. I didn't really know why. Mm. So it was this mystery, but I just was afraid. And that's also one of the reasons I was so afraid that I didn't even want to be on the pill because I was so scared because it was like, I, I, I was afraid that I could just get pregnant on any day and I wouldn't know about it because mm. I was on this pill and it kind of, you know, you could take, if you want to, you can take the pill like a couple, you know, you just don't, don't take your sugar pills and just not have your period, not have your withdrawal bleed or whatever. And so that fear leads us to make all kinds of different choices. So when it comes to the birth control pill, um, of course, we're so terrified of getting pregnant that we'll jump on it but often forgetting that one of the main side effects of the pill is loss of libido and depression and anxiety. And so, uh, it's, it's great to be able to keep your libido 
and still avoid pregnancy when you want to. Yeah. Yeah. It's empowering. <laughs> yeah. I went and seen a comedian a couple of weeks ago and um, he's a male Scottish comedian. His name's Daniel Sloss. His, um, his comedy is very hilarious and dark, but he actually spoke about sex education and it was so fascinating because he said, you know, in Scotland where he's from, they, they do that. They put that fear factor into you and they pretty much teach abstinence. And it was really, you know, that's as, as an only option, don't do it, <laughs> which as a teenager just made him want to do it. Um, <laughs> like the rest of us and um it was really interesting because I just remembered having um a dread you know when I was trying to fall pregnant with Callie um I was like had this dread and I really had to sit down and spend time recognizing that it was from when I was a kid and and falling pregnant is a bad thing and it's a wrong thing and it's something that we try and avoid our whole, you know, teenage, early 20s, like, you know, all of that, it was, it had this really negative connotation and I had to really sit down and work through that. Um, yeah, fascinating because of that sex, sex education essentially. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And I've seen it also happen in the way that when you are ready to try to conceive after years of actively avoiding and being so terrified of it happening and being absolutely convinced that it was going to happen yeah. anytime you ever had sex. Yeah. Then when you finally start trying, yeah. um, what happens <laughs> is that the first month you're like, cool, you're okay. Cause you know, like for example, like you just get off the pill, you know, you're, you're trying the first month and the first month you're like, you know, I just got off the pill. It's fine. But we've been programmed. We've been taught this since we were all little girls. Mm. I have rarely met a girl that wasn't taught woman that was taught this. And so by month two, you know, if you get your period at the end of month two and you're still not pregnant, you usually start freaking out a little Mm. bit, even by then. And so the lack of, that's where the lack of knowledge is is just so apparent because your average Mm -hmm. healthy couple has about a 25% chance of conceiving in any given cycle. So that means that it would take an average of four cycles for a completely Mm. normal healthy couple in normal circumstances to get pregnant. Um, You know, one of the things that women don't know, you know, we're not even taught about our, is how the pill affects fertility. And so when you look at the, there's different types of studies that look at this, there's time to pregnancy studies where they specifically look at how long it takes to get pregnant. And then there's studies that look at how long it takes the cycle parameters to go back to normal. Mm -hmm. And so when we're looking at the time to pregnancy studies, well, coming off the regular birth control pill, it takes about twice as long for a woman to get pregnant. Yep. And so we've got the four months in a normal situation. You, you were using condoms and now you're not. So, yeah. you know, in, in that particular study, the, the condom users, it took an average of four months because okay. that's what, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the women on the pill, it took an average of eight months and that's an average. Mm. So some women got pregnant sooner. Some women got pregnant later and all pregnancies don't result in babies. Yeah. There's always a miscarriage rate. I always have to point that out. Um, but if you think about that, so picture the woman who comes off the pill same, you know, education as we all got was so scared to come off of it any earlier than she mm. did because she wasn't really ready. Yeah. But have you noticed that there's a phenomenon? Um, pregnancy is a really complicated thing. And so is readiness. And the story that we're told in our culture currently about pregnancy is that we should all be, it's like black or white, like we should all be ready or not ready. And like, yeah. as if there's no gray area, I did a podcast about this recently because if you work with women in any type of health capacity, it is very clear that it is not always black and white. And it, for the more often than not, it yeah. is great. 
And it can go from absolutely I am not ready to I want a baby right now yeah. within a matter of days. Yeah. And so this is what this is where it, it's challenging because the pill doesn't it's not the pill wasn't made for that, you know. Um, so, for example, if I go through that transition where I really wasn't ready, it, you know, I wasn't in a position, but then the, the transition quickly happens in my mind and I come off the pill. Yeah. I'm also expecting to get pregnant right away Absolutely. because I was spending my whole 20s avoiding it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and I was terrified to come off of it any earlier because I didn't want to, you know, I wasn't ready. Yeah. And so then what happens? Well, the, no one necessarily tells you that it takes an average of eight months. Yeah. Um, if you took the depot shot, that's an average of 18 months. Wow. Uh, so it depends on the type wow. of yeah. um, birth that's control. Yeah. And, and so then, you know, three months go by, four months go by, you're probably already in a fertility clinic getting IUI. And nobody told you that. So when they look at just how long it takes your cycles in general to just go back to normal. So we're not talking about pregnancy. Mm. We're just talking about how long does it take before your cycles just look normal again? Yeah. And anywhere from nine to 12 cycles or mm. more. And you and I both know that not every woman comes off the pill and gets her period like that month. No. So sometimes it can take up two months or three months. So nine to 12 yeah. cycles are like 12 to 18 months. Nobody tells us this. Mm. So it's really setting women up. You know, this is but why I'm so passionate about it. Yeah. For severe disappointment and um, anxiety and depression and, um, you know, like that, I'm, I'm not worthy and, I, I'm not doing it right or I don't I haven't got it in me there's something wrong with me like all of that stuff that we already have enough not of that. to mention ten thousand dollars fifteen thousand well, dollars it's interesting because we don't in Australia we really don't touch a woman until at least 12 months um, and they're pretty set on that like and so I get a lot of the women in between so they've mm. come off the pill um, a lot of them don't have a cycle yet, and I've seen many women who still don't have a bleed 12 months after coming off the pill. Like, that's insane. To, you know, I just can't even fathom that. Um, and they, they keep coming in. And so we get that bleed back. Herbs can usually get it back within a couple of months, which is great. Um, but then, you know, they they're by this point, they're so sad and so disappointed and are going through all of that stuff you just explained, like, why didn't I know this? I would have gone off it earlier. Like now we're ready. I've organized my whole life to do this and, and it's not happening. Um, so there's all that emotional stuff then too. And like, there's always, always, um, I have St. John's wort is this beautiful herb that I just, it's in every single one of those mixes, you know, it's like fertility and stress support and fertility and stress support. It goes hand in hand. Um, yeah, like it's just, it's unbelievable that we don't we don't know more about that. But yeah, we don't touch them for about twelve months in terms of the medical stuff. They're like, no, keep trying, go back, let it do its thing. You haven't given it enough time, so that is a positive. Mm-hmm. But even twelve months, so um, that's even part of the point, which is that at the twelve month mark post pill, assuming that you did start menstruating again, start ovulating again, and menstruating, your cycles are. St- you know, um, not necessarily there, according to what the research would say, Mm. the cycles are either just starting to normalize finally, (laughs) or they're still kind of normalizing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so with that in mind, I found one research study where they actually looked at that specifically and they, they identified the 
temporary delay in the return of normal fertility. I think it's really important when talking about this to, to really stress that there's no indication in the research that it's permanent. I mean, I would have loved to be able to throw the pill under the bus. You know, yeah. you know but, but there was that, that was not what the research yeah, indicated. Okay. There was nothing to, to, to indicate that it was um, permanent or that the pill causes fertility okay. problems. Like yeah, in that right. sense, like right. yeah. um, what the research indicated was that it, it's associated with a, a, a temporary delay in the return of the normal mm-hmm. fertility. So there's a period, a post pill transition phase that we go through, whether we plan for it or not, whether we know about it or not, whether we're ready for it or not. That is what our bodies go through. And uh, in this one research paper, the researcher has suggested that we should have a special category for women coming off the pill so that, you know, instead of thinking that we're going to refer them for IVF at 12 months, maybe we should refer them in 15 months, they suggested in that article. Because keeping in mind that we know that it suppresses fertility for a period of time, Mm. uh, which is interesting. Because there's a very simple solution for this, right? We could just talk about it. We could just look at the research and then, um, you know, tell when, <laughs> what a concept, right? You could tell women <laughs> right. that the pill is associated with this delay. And so that you, because I've spoken to a number of women, and I'm sure you have as well, who were concerned even, you know, their intuition, their inner voice was saying like, hey, I've been on this thing for like 10 years. Mm. I don't even know what my normal cycle is like. I want to get pregnant next year. Like, am I going to be able to do this? So they make concerned enough that they make appointments with their doctors and go, Mm. you know, like that's some serious intuition, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's not like you just had a thought, you booked an appointment and went to see the doctor. And then, you know, the doctor says, the doctor says, well, you know, there's no real point in going off early. We know that it's reversible. And so you'll probably have no trouble. This is, these are the conversations that happen. I've spoken to so many women they come off the pill. And I mean, some women, yeah, some women get their periods right away. But even if you get your period right away, if you've been on the pill for 10 to you know, 12 years or whatever the case is, you, uh, we know that the pill is associated with uh, nutrient deficiencies yeah. that are exacerbated by long-term use. So yeah. even if you were to get pregnant, A, you're at a higher mm-hmm. risk of miscarriage if you just get pregnant immediately post-pill. Um, and B, it's not necessarily ideal either because you would ideally want to give your your body some time to replenish mm. those nutrients and just to kind of go through that transition phase that we spoke about. So this is information as women that we need to know because yeah. uh, you could be going for that those fertility treatments right around the time when your body's trying to normalize. Yeah, right. And I mean, just to think about that for a second, right? Mm. Like it's really heartbreaking when we could, it does, there's no, no guarantee. We can't guarantee that coming off early is going to, you know, but we can, what we, what I can say is that if you come off the pill when you're not ready to get pregnant, so you're still avoiding, but you're, so you're obviously preventing pregnancy and however method you're comfortable with, whether it's condoms or whether it's fertility awareness or some sort of non-hormonal method, uh, then you don't have the stress of trying to get pregnant your body can just do what it's doing. Yeah. And then once, cause your body just has to go through this transition phase. So once that, you know, ideally 12 to 18 months or more has passed, uh, not only do you have that transition phase over, but you also would have had the opportunity to see what your cycle is really like. If there was a problem, you would have a chance to, mm. to be able to address that before you're stressed about not getting pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Cause with any other concept, any other thing that we do in our life, we allow time to adjust, um, <laughs> like dietary change or yeah, like anything, habit changing or whatever it might be. We're like, yeah, this is going to take some time, but we just, yeah, it's so funny. We have such a different mentality now um, 
yeah, about our, our cycles. And like you said, it is sad. Um, oh, man, it's the most heartbreaking thing when you finally get to the place with your clients that they're, you know, they're um, ready and they're wanting and all that kind of stuff and either they can't or they do miscarriage. And, I, you know, I see that often. Um, often I get people in after they've had a couple of miscarriages and even like just talking about it, I get a bit, <laughs> I'm not a great clinician if I'm going to cry about it, but yeah, it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. And then that has all of the other detrimental effects you're talking about in terms of stress as well um, and worry there. But it's because, yeah, like you said, A, their body's probably not ready. They've got the nutrient deficiencies, but also it may not be the best, the healthiest um, egg because their body hasn't adjusted and, and had that time to create um yeah beautiful ovulation again Mm -hmm. Mm. well and one of the things that i would say surprised me a little when i was looking into the research so even talking a little bit about aging and egg quality and those Mm. types of things as as women we hear things you know after age 35 something happens we don't know what it is but after age 35 right like you know before you kind of go into all of the details it's like something happens around age 35 and they say that you know we're less fertile they say that we're if you get if you get pregnant over thirty five, it's called like a geriatric pregnancy. No. <laughs> um, and in medical textbooks, that's what it's referred to no. as. Um, or your advanced maternal age is the polite way that they say it now. That's um, but but at the same time, so what I realized is that you know one of the reasons why fertility is reduced over the age of thirty five. I mean when you look at the, the numbers of eggs that we have left and all those types of things, like it's very apparent that, you know, over time it gradually decreases until we have our last, you know, cycle of menopause, uh, before menopause. But, um, what was interesting was the miscarriage rate. And so, um, for a woman in her twenties, you know, the miscarriage rate somewhere around say 8% of pregnancies, if I'm remembering correctly mm-hmm. from the research, by the time you're in your mid thirties, it, it increases significantly to the point that when you're about around age 40, about half of all pregnancies statistically result in miscarriage. Mm-hmm. And by the time you're in your mid forties, it's up to 75%. So wow. it, essentially when you're in your mid forties, you have to get pregnant four times to keep one. Mm-hmm. And it's I, the, the topic of miscarriage is obviously really tough. You know, I've been working with women for a long time as well. And, um, uh, so it's, I do find though, that when I talk about it that way, because that's not something that a lot of women are, are privy to that knowledge that the miscarriage rate significantly increases along with age. And I mean, obviously that's related to egg quality changes and the increased incidence of, um, chromosomal abnormalities and things like that. I mean, that's well known, but I think how it plays out in terms of the miscarriage thing is not really well known. Yeah. But if you, if, if, as, if as women we knew that miscarriage is something that does increase with frequency with age, and even just knowing that, at, you know, around the age of 40, statistically, half of all pregnancies, like you have to have two, you have to get pregnant twice to keep one. Mm. Um, it sounds really callous, but how many women have you worked with who really believe that there's something wrong with them and that their body's broken? If you know that this, and most women who have miscarriages, myself included, because I had a miscarriage uh, early on before I had my first son. And honestly, I had no idea that everyone I knew had a miscarriage until yeah. I had a miscarriage. Yeah. It was like the miscarriage club. Nobody talked about it. And then as yeah. soon as I had a miscarriage, every single person I knew, oh, I had a miscarriage. Mm. Oh, my sister had two. Oh, I had four. And I'm just like, 
I had no idea that my own it was mother. Yeah, my own mother <laughs> said to me, "Oh yeah, don't worry, I had a miscarriage between you and your sister." And you probably never knew. And I went, "What? Like you know, what? You lost a baby? How did I not know that?" It's you know, and at the time, I'm sure that was horrific for my mum, but. Now it's it's a, just a part of her pregnancy story, you know. Like, yeah, yeah, that's that's what happened. That was that was normal for me. Um, and it was almost like her. That's okay. That's really normal. Uh, don't worry about it. You'll fall again. And it actually did make me feel better at the time that that was a normal thing. Um, so you know, if that's what the you're trying to say, if we knew this, we might not worry so much, even though it is you know, heartbreaking, yes. yeah, it, it is the way well, it plays out sometimes. Yeah. The message is, is not that it's not a big deal because it's, yes. it's a, it's a horrific, it's, yes. it's a, it's a big deal. Uh, yeah. So that's not the message. Yeah. The message is just that it's not necessarily personal. It doesn't mean that your body is broken yeah. or that there's something wrong with you because as you get older, it's something like if we knew that, like there's other things that we know happen when we get older too. We know, you know, eventually we're going to have to start getting different types of testing. We know that we're going to have to look into, you know, different things about health. So understanding that as we get older, the risk of miscarriage is higher and it's not a personal thing. It's just because, you know, it's, a, it's basically a product of, of aging. So a, that can be helpful just to help you process it, to know that it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you or that you won't be able to, to get pregnant and keep yeah. the baby. Yeah. Um, but then on the flip side, knowing that can also prompt you to look into the ways to improve your overall health, improve your equality, um, you know, replenish those nutrient stores, look into preconception nutrition. I mean, well, most of the women I knew when they were, you know, planning, getting married and planning their wedding took like six months to a year. Yeah. To organize all that stuff. And there yeah. was so much planning. It's like one day of your life and it's like every, you, so much planning goes into that, right? So it's time for us to, you know, put some of that energy and uh, just that planning kind of detail oriented type of situation. We have to start thinking of preconception that way, especially because the majority of women are having their first pregnancies mm. into their 30s. Mm. And from a reproductive standpoint, we are old and it, I don't like to say, I know that there's a lot of, I know that I'm going to, you know, I can already hear like, no, don't, you know, it's not positive. Yeah, no, from that... a reproductive, like from a reproductive standpoint mm. only, the yeah. best time to, to have babies is when we're in our twenties. So if we, if we know already that we're having babies into our thirties, it just means that we should be a little bit more, yeah. um, uh, just more aware because yeah. it doesn't mean that we can't have healthy babies well into our thirties. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just means that we have to know what it, what it really means. Yes. It's coming and, from that beautiful place of compassion, but also that amazing, um, you know, place of, of incredible knowledge that you have. So I, I you can definitely hear that you're not, I don't think you'll be getting any mean emails. And okay, thank if you, you do, you can follow like, them to me. No, 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 no. And me too. <laughs> like, you know, like we both have just said, we've both had miscarriages. We've, we've both conceived um, successfully as well. And the thing in my clinic is I talk to my women about not just falling pregnant, but falling pregnant with the best possible, most amazing, uh, you know, egg 
health-wise. And, um, you know, I've said a number of times on this podcast, you can even determine some of the aesthetics of your baby. If it's, you know, you can determine a really um, beautiful, healthy, good-looking baby that's going to thrive in this world. It's not just about conceiving. It's conceiving um, a beautiful, you know, like amazing baby that doesn't have allergies, that's not prone to autoimmune disease, that is just super, going to be super awesome in this world. And that's what you want. That's what every mother wants for their child. So, and looking after mm-hmm. yourself as well, like, cause if you have nutrient deficiencies, Bub's going to have them and all that kind of stuff as well. So making sure that we're ready. Yeah. I think there's lots of compassion there and I, I hope that that's coming across to everybody. <laughs> we're, we're here with love and knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and speaking of love and and all of, you know, love and compassion, one of, I mean, we're always focused and we should be on the health of baby. So when we think of preconception planning and nutrition Mm. and all of the things we're talking about, it's always with the intention of having the healthiest babies possible and and really preparing for that. But as a mom of two, I would say that we need to be equally concerned about ourselves. Yeah. And I, if that comes across as strange, it shouldn't, because when you have your baby, who has to take care of the baby? Mm. Babies come into the world, you know, they, they can't do a whole lot, <laughs> <laughs> especially for the first three months. So that means you are basically there. Mm. Uh, so if you go into pregnancy really depleted, you're kind of putting yourself at a greater risk Absolutely. to experience postpartum symptoms mm-hmm. and different things. So part of it is quite literally to, it's that, that old kind of like you're on a plane, you got to put on your own, your head, your mask yes. first type of thing. It's really important, I think, as moms to, we have to think of ourselves as well. And so part of the preconception planning, part of this conversation around learning about the effects of the pill and you know, making a plan as to when you're going to come off so that you can give your body time to adjust and, uh, you know, taking the time to realign your cycles, get your libido back, get your hormones flowing healthily, normally get your cycle back to normal before you're starting to, to, to think about having babies. Part of it is so that when you're going into pregnancy, uh, one of the analogies that I use in the book is that uh, think of like a bank account. So when you're pregnant, the only thing that happens essentially is withdrawals. Um, you're not going to come out on the other side of pregnancy and potentially, you know, months or years of breastfeeding and be like in a better nutrient status yeah. than you had going in. It just yeah. doesn't happen. And so part of it is to think about it that way and to recognize that in order to have a, a healthy, happy postpartum, to, mm. to do what you can to reduce the chances of having a lot of distress um, would be to really load up that bank account, make yeah. sure your iron levels are good, your folate, your choline, your B12, your, you know, I could go on for days, but yeah. just make yeah. sure that your levels are good going into it. Yeah, and that comes from that preconception. And, you you know, you've talked about even up to a year as a naturopath, like we've always, always done a minimum four months. Um, and that's what we're taught when we become naturopaths. Like you, if someone comes in and they want to fall pregnant, you explain to them that you, they cannot start trying for at least three to four months, but in, even longer if they've come off a um, contraception device is your mm-hmm. message. Yeah. Yeah. Which is such a good message. Give it time. Yeah. And yeah. it goes so far beyond like, just pre- take your prenatal and don't worry about it. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> or not even that, like just once you fall pregnant, start taking the the vitamins, you know, like that's a big message here that's coming out. No, just wait till you fall pregnant, then start taking your, I won't name names, but crap, crappy vitamins and synthetic stuff. That's just so tough because 
again, it's not, these are not evidence-based statements. When you look mm. at what the research has to say, the mother's prenatal stores of iron, choline, folate, you know, vitamin A, the baby's heart is beating in many cases before many women know they're pregnant. So when you're charting, you would know that you're pregnant, uh, you know, when your period doesn't come. Because you, if you're tracking your cycle and you know that your period tends to come about 13 days after ovulation, well, day 14, 15, 16 still hasn't come, you have a heads up and early, you know, sign that you're, you're pregnant and your temperature would also not go down. It would continue to go up. Um, but most women wouldn't necessarily know that they were pregnant that early on. So the heart is already beating. And mm. technically, so when you, when you've missed your period, you're already four weeks pregnant. Wow. A lot of, you know, a lot of people don't really realize that because they, they count the first week of pregnancy from your, your period essentially. Mm. And of course they do it based on a 28 day cycle and all that. So you don't have to do that. You don't have to, uh, but by the time you even discover that you're pregnant, the baby's heart is already beating. And so think about, you know, in order for the heart to form normally and to beat properly, you need to have sufficient levels of vitamin A already in your system prior Absolutely. to, you know, in order for that neural tube to develop properly, you have to have that folate and choline in your system already before, you know? Yeah. So that even when you said that I had like that, that like, okay, take a deep breath, Lisa, because it's like, imagine you're taking your prenatals after you find out you get pregnant, yeah. which yeah. is good to take them. But ideally we can do better for women. We can, Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like we can do so much better for women. Mm. And for baby. <laughs> and baby. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to tell everybody like, whether you want to get pregnant or whether you don't go and download that first chapter because I just loved it. I found it so fascinating and you know, I I work with this stuff and I'm still learning so much. Um, and so it's really great to have you, um, as a amazing source of knowledge and with all of your research base, people can actually listen and hear that and go, ah, it's, it's from evidence. Like for some reason, when people hear that it's from a research or evidence base, they like, okay, I'll take that on board. Um, you know, whereas if we're just saying it, then not so much. Um, so go and download the fifth vital sign, master your cycles and optimize your health, the free chapters on your website. And, um, then because you'll love it so much, you'll go and buy it. And you've just recorded the audio book you were saying. I did. So thank you so much for that. The book is available on Amazon in ebook audio ebook uh paperback and audiobook now cool and so you know if anyone wants to jump on you can actually get the audiobook for free if you sign up for one of those audible subscriptions yeah, so fertilityfriday.com slash audible yes <laughs> if you want to get emails like me too you just jump online and subscribe right is that how i did it it was so long ago now yeah it's on my website there's places to um to subscribe and if you if you um so if you go to the fifth vital sign book.com, you, you'll see right there, like you can get the free chapter to download and you'll get the emails then when you join ah, in. It tells that's you that. probably what I did. You'll also get Lisa's yeah, e- email yeah. newsletter. But I love it. That's probably what I did. And and now I have a little folder in my inbox for you. Oh, yeah. 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 So I read them and I put them in there or I sometimes I put them in there and go back because you know what it's like when you get all those emails, but I'm like, I am going to read this and I keep them. <laughs> I don't just hit the delete, which is nice because I'm, yeah, they're great. They're great emails. So thank you for that as well. Um, Thanks so much for your time. 
Yeah, so thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. We obviously could chat for days. Yes, that's <laughs> such a pleasure. No, like really, honestly, such a pleasure to talk to you. And um, everyone will know you already find you, and we'll put it all in the show notes as well. So thanks again for, for your time and coming in. Of course. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. If you like what we do here at The Naked Naturopath, then be sure to rate, review and subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. To learn more about Mel and MG Herbs, jump onto mgherbs.com, follow us on Facebook at MG Herbs Australia and Instagram at MG Herbs Official. Please keep in mind that all advice and opinions on The Naked Naturopath are not individualized. To get the right advice for you, be sure to make a booking with Mel or your health professional. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.